Stanford University. So I feel a little like the airlines. Um, and for an on-time start, <laughs> so welcome all of you. Um, good afternoon. Welcome to the Coverly Lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek. I'm the Dean of the School of Education here. Just one reminder, please turn off your cell phone. And I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Holly Moderman, who and her team, who did just an incredible amount of work and a great job in organizing this um, coverly lecture and getting us fed, in, in fact, in, in addition to organizing the lectures. So thank you. I want to give a special welcome to the students in the audience who are visiting Stanford uh, for admit day today. We hope this is a, a good ending to a stimulating day, and we hope that um, after such a great day, you will want to come and be part of the Stanford community. We're fortunate today to have two nationally recognized leaders in the field of education to talk about the critical needs of our high schools. I want to tell you more about our presenters, our speakers, in just a moment, but first I need to tell you a little bit about the Coverly Lecture. The lecture series was started by Elwood Coverly, who was the first dean of the School of Education. He was also a major benefactor of the school. There are two reasons why we would not be here today if it were not for Elwood Coverly. <clears throat> First, he funded the building, so we would not be in this building because it wouldn't exist. And second, he provided an endowment for this lecture series. Um, he was interested in promoting, encouraging dis discussions of current education issues, and I think we can all be sure that this is going to be an, uh, an engaging and lively discussion <clears throat> about one of the most important current issues that we have today. So I'm sure that Dean Coverley would be very pleased. Uh, one other thing, just to let you know, you have a short survey, which I hope you will fill out so you can give us some feedback and suggestions for um, speakers for future Coverley lectures. After the presentation, there will be uh, an opportunity for people in the audience to ask questions. There are microphones in the aisles for that. So now let me introduce our wonderful speakers. Governor Weiss was the former governor of West Virginia and is currently president of the Alliance for Excellent Education. Born in Washington, D.C., educated at Duke and Tulane, Governor Weiss returned to the Capitol to represent West Virginia in the House of Representatives for 18 years before being elected as governor in 2001. Now, as you know, many governors claim to be the education governor, right? Well, this is the real McCoy. <laughs> governor Weiss really was the education governor. Um, he achieved um, many education innovations in his state, which are well known. I'm just going to mention a few to give you some examples of things that he, that he um, promoted in his state. He signed legislation to fund the Promise Scholarship Program, which allows many West Virginia students to attend any public state university free of charge. I bet that's a popular program now. He worked aggressively to preserve federal financial aid and saw a significant increase in the number of students completing high school and entering college. He established a character education curriculum in all state schools and signed major legislation creating a nationally recognized pre-K program. He proposed, I'm going to, there's going to be some happy people when they hear this, he proposed salary bonuses for teachers who achieved national board certification which helped triple the rate of certified teachers in the state. Governor Weiss continues his 
School Reform Efforts is president of the Alliance for Excellent Education, which is a national education policy and advocacy organization. He has also been spending some time writing a book, the title of which we've taken for tonight's lecture. So just to comment, when, when apropos to these uh, difficult economic times we're all in, um, Bob Weiss believes that the best economic stimulus is a high school diploma. And I think we can all agree that that is a very good investment strategy. Next to him is someone very well known to us, Larry Cuban, Professor Emeritus. When I was thinking about the best person to engage Bob Weiss in a conversation about school reform, Larry obviously was the first person who came to mind. Um, Larry has an unusual, I think probably unique blend of being one of the greatest scholars in the field of education, but with feet firmly planted in the real world of schools. He knows what it means to be a high school teacher. He's been one, uh, US history and economics. He knows what it's, what it's like to be a, high, a school administrator. He was superintendent of Arlington, Virginia Public Schools between 1974 and 1981 when he, happily for us, returned to Stanford. I don't know whether uh, high school or university students are more demanding, Larry, but the students, um, it, it's, we have a lot of evidence that Larry has practiced what he preaches. Um, the students in the School of Education have selected him for an excellence in teaching award seven times so far. <laughs> Larry has authored many highly acclaimed books on the subject of schools and school reform. His most recent is Hugging the Middle, How Teachers Teach in an Era of Testing and Accountability. So Bob and Larry, we are honored to have you with us this evening and we are looking forward to your comments about high schools. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction, and Bob, it's a pleasure to meet you for the first time. Uh, and one of the reasons I find it such a pleasure is that I still believe books are very hard to, to do. And so when you wrote So do book, I. <laughs> <laughs> when you wrote this book, and then to meet you uh, after that, uh, it's, it is a pleasure to do that. What, I, uh, what I'd like to do is ask you kind of opening series of questions about the book itself, so you'll have a chance to tell all of us about the argument in the book, the evidence, and, and the direction that you're traveling, okay? So let me begin with the first question. Why did you write this book, Raising the Grade, How High School Reform Can Save Our Youth and Nation? Because I really wanted to bring together what I was experiencing, and that was a union of research and practice in education but the necessity to turn it into policy. And when I say policy, I have a real specific definition, and that is getting something enacted. I have some basic premises. First of all, there are two important places where most critical decisions in education are going to be made. They're made, millions of them are made every day by teachers in the classroom, undisputed. It's another place too. Ultimately, every important decision in education is made by an elected official. It's made by an elected school board member, it's made by, maybe made by a mayor in some cities, made by a state legislator, made by a governor, made by a member of Congress, made by the President of the United States, deciding what to introduce with no child left behind. And so where, the, where I come from is, I'm, I've been in politics all my life, but I believe strongly in the power of education. I also wrote the book for another reason, Larry. This is my mea culpa. 
because this book reflects what I've learned in the last four years as president of the Alliance for Excellent Education that I wish I had known the previous 24 when I was a state legislator, when I was a member of Congress, and when I was a governor. I like to think that I focus, I mean, I, like to, uh, hope, I hope that I improved education for a number of people, but I tended to focus in two areas. I focused over here on pre-K, early childhood, and I focused over here on higher education, access to college, and I'm delighted that I did. I forgot something, though, and I think a lot of elected officials do as well. We, I forgot the middle. I forgot high school, I forgot middle school, and I forgot high schools. And so this is about, yes, it's a, and it, it, one final note, Larry said he hoped that since I was a former politician, I wouldn't talk as long. But um, <laughs> as you can see, Larry, some things, unfortunately, takes a while. You're doing fine. No, I got to go Keep through. it short. No, I've I just got to go through detox. I'm still, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Bob, I'm in stage five of being, um, but, the, but the other part of it is, I believe that, we all, I wrote this book for those of you, and I don't think there are many in this room, but I wrote this book for the 70% of the American people that don't have anybody in the public school system, don't have contact with the public school system. And yet, what I wanted to try and drive home was what I was increasingly learning, which is it, whether or not, whether my child is in the public school system doesn't matter as much. We are all affected by it. Our national economy, our national security interests, our economic security interests, as well as the well-being of that child. So long-winded, that's why I wrote the book. Good. Uh, in, the, uh, in the book, you have a startling statistic uh, that, is, that I've seen elsewhere, too, that we have about 25 to 28,000 high schools in the country. And you have this statistic, about 10% of those high schools produce 50% of the dropouts. Yeah. And you call those dropout factories, which uh, is a phrase that is uh, mildly volatile. But the point that I, uh, the question that I want to get to is that why have secondary schools become so dysfunctional? Okay. Well, I do want to stress that, uh, actually, I'd love to take credit for that term and we publicize it and work with it, but it's actually termed by some researchers, uh, uh, other researchers that have, have coined that. And what they did was to identify the 2,000, the, the bottom tier of high schools where a 10 kids starting uh, ninth grade, let me, I always get this wrong, 10 kids starting um, less than 60% will, six will finish. In other words, you're going to have almost, it's almost, you have as much chance of dropping out as you do of graduating. And so we, the point was we know where those high schools are. 2,000 high schools, 10 to 12 percent of them account for half the dropouts. Why is it that high schools have, have been ignored? I think it's for two reasons. First of all is because I think quite rightly, as, and remember this book is written from it, what's the federal role, is that we tended to focus at the local, state, and then when the federal government got involved, particularly 50 years ago, we tended to focus on pre early childhood development and pre-K, and we absolutely should. You've got to build a strong foundation. But we tended also to believe that once we got that up and running, by golly, we've got those kids in. We got literacy started uh, pre-K to uh, grade three and reading first. We've got a number of other initiatives. Once we've done that, they'll be able to take it on their own. That if we build the strong foundation, they'll be able to, f the, the kids will handle it from middle and high school. And what we learned is, and what the research I think is increasingly showing us is, you've got to have the strong foundation, but it's like me. I'm a klutz as a carpenter. You can build my, a foundation for my house, but don't expect me to finish the house. 
I'm going to need help in finishing. So middle and high schools are integral. Second part is this. From what, if, you, if you accept my maxim, and many people don't, I might add, if you accept my point of my belief that ultimately all decisions are going to be made by elected officials in terms of setting policy, it's too easy for elected officials to ignore middle and high schools, secondary schools. They're, they're remote. They, these kids are bigger. Uh, they're not good photo ops. Uh, and incidentally, they're supposed to be able to read by the 10th grade. So if I go out to the high school and find out they're not reading and comprehending at grade level, what am I going to do about it? I think I'll stick with the early grades. Thank you very much. And so for the reason that I, I believe we were slow in realizing the need for the K-12 continuum, and plus the fact that it was just too easy to overlook middle and high schools. Oh, and one final reason. We didn't need them all to graduate. When I graduated from high school in 1965 in Charleston, West Virginia, I didn't need a high school diploma. And indeed, many of my colleagues didn't to get a good paying job in coal mines, steel mills, or, coal, or uh, chemical plants. So we didn't need everybody. To, Henry, Ford, somebody, Henry Ford didn't need a bunch of high school graduates on the first uh, assembly line in the 1920s. What he needed was somebody who had gotten basic skills to sixth to eighth grade, could communicate with those around them, could read and write, thank you very much, turn a wrench, that's all you need to do. Today, I went back right before I left office in 2004, visited every one of those companies I just mentioned to you. I couldn't get in, I couldn't get in the door of any of them as a new employee without post-secondary education. And so the, the, the reason we, that high schools tended to fall behind us, we didn't need them to graduate. Today, we need every one of them to graduate. Okay. Does this mean that, um, that No Child Left Behind hasn't really uh, worked to address the kind of concerns you have? No. I, first of all, I, I happen to be an advocate of certain aspects of No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind focused a laser light, focused a laser on certain problems. Um, and the most significant part of No Child Left Behind is it forced us to keep data and it forced us to not only look at a school in terms of the total population of the school, but to look at the subgroups within the school, ethnic or the children of et what different ethnic origins, the children of, uh, of income disparities, uh, the children with special needs, the children that could not, that were not English language learners. So for the first time, you could have a 2,000 person high school and it could look pretty good if it had a 70%, 70, well, I think it's pretty, 70% graduation rate is pretty atrocious, let's say an 80% graduation rate. And yet you've got several hundred kids that aren't doing well. They're dropping out. Well, it was easy to ignore them. No Child Left Behind forced us to focus. So that part is good. What No Child Left Behind, though, didn't do was to give us the tools to do something about it. First of all, it doesn't apply to high schools effectively. Uh, one reason is all that talk about testing, there's only one that's required in high school. Second is, what's the carrot and the stick of No Child Left Behind? It's federal dollars. Whether or not you get federal money, and most of the federal money is Title I. Title I goes where? Title I goes to the early grades. Only 9% of high school students are actually covered by Title I. So therefore, it doesn't matter whether your high school makes AYP or not. It's a, it's a one-day story. And, and then finally, No Child Left Behind has a very limited, uh, one-size-fits-all approach. If you are found not to be in compliance, one, it takes too long to kick in, but only in, when it comes to high schools, there are only two remedies. You either choice, you get to move to another high school, or uh, tutoring. That's it. And yet what we know is that 75% of all high schools 
are in single high school districts. So for 75% of high schools, there is no choice because there's no other high school. And, the, and so it turns out that A, kids aren't, most high schools aren't covered by uh, the, the dollars that would drive change and the changes that it would drive are too limited. So no child left behind needs to be uh, revamped significantly. Well, uh, what, uh, the, the, the rationale that you're offering is, uh, and part of it uh, is not included in No Child Left Behind, as you said, but it's, the rationale is that we need transformed high schools to boost the economy. We need it for social stability. We need it for national security. We need it for democratic values. I mean, those are the arguments you lay out. And then the equity argument is also there. Now, we want, uh, you argue very strongly about we have to have these, uh, we have to reinvent the high school, the comprehensive high school. What, what I'd like you to lay out for the uh, audience, Bob, is what would this good high school, this reinvented high school, what would it look like? It, what, the new, what the reinvented high school would look like is what some of the high schools that some of you are working in today look like. It would, first of all, recognize that one size does not fit all, that the high school that was basically designed around the turn of the last century uh, is no, that that design was to meet a different social need than the one today, although some of the factors were the same. That, the, that our children come to us and need not a standardized approach, but need to be engaged where they live. And what do I mean by that? I mean a personal graduation plan for every student. Is it too much to ask that starting in the seventh grade, we require that every student have a personal graduation plan worked out by the counselor, by the faculty, by the uh, principal, by the parents, by the student, to maximize that student's opportunities? It means that we recognize that we assess students not to, not to punish the school, but when we assess them, we're doing it so that we can learn what it is that student needs and immediately apply whatever it is that student needs. Literacy, for instance, according to the only federal test, NAEP, National Assessment for Educational Progress, 70% of our eighth graders, those entering high school, are reading below grade level. So it's 30% are reading two grades, at least below grade level. Clearly those students, and incidentally, I can, I can go to any state and I'll look at your lowest reading level on NAEP and I'll predict within one or two points what your dropout rate is. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. And so, I, so therefore, those students that automatically, that we see in eighth grade, need what we assess and have reading problems, we intervene. So what does a high school look like? Personalization, engagement, um, uh, teachers with a career ladder, teachers that get mentoring, teachers that get professional, what I call professional backup, that you're not dropping uh, uh, the newest teacher into the most challenging environment and saying, God go with you and we'll come back and check on you in about nine months. Um, and so, um, uh, so those, and, and that finally, the building may look the same, but what's going on inside that building may be significantly different. It makes, even if you have a large comprehensive high school of several thousand students, how do we personalize that high school to make, to make it much more personal to that individual student, both in terms of how we interact with that student and perceive their needs? I was at a high school in the Bronx recently, and I was struck by the fact that they had taken their high school and reorganized it in this way. Every teacher in their or every adult, there were adults in there, some of the coaches uh, and other faculty and administrators. Everyone was directly responsible for 10 to 15 students. They met with them at least once a week. The other teachers corresponded by email, the teachers that had them, 
uh, those students would correspond by email to keep them up to date, and that there was a constant interaction. Another high school uh, in Baltimore, what they do is they, have, they bring in 100 kids, and the 100, the 100 students will have the same four to five teachers. And so now, it's, and rather than kids switching classes and everybody has a different teacher, uh, now it's a team teaching. All four or five teachers are talking all the time to the same students. So there are a number of in initiatives that I think can be done. It's out there. You all are doing it. Many in this room, and certainly at this, at this major university, I mean, you've got East Palo Alto High, you've got the Stanford redesign system. I mean, this school itself is a, a hotbed of what it is that we need to do and to replicate. That's what this book is about. It's about replication. How do we take what works for 500 kids in this school or 50,000 across 10 school districts and put it to work for the 6 million at-risk grades 7 to 12 uh, in our country? Uh, these, uh, you, have, you list them and you explain them, elaborate them quite clearly in, in your book. Uh, you call them 10 correlates. For, uh, ra rather than use the fancy academic word correlates, let me call them features. Great. All right. Now, here's a, here's a kicker, so get ready, okay? Um, for the last three decades, I've heard of these features over and oh, yeah. over again. Reformers have pushed them. But little has changed in a lot of these comprehensive high schools, the one that are in those bottom tiers especially. So why should we believe that the features that you say are necessary to transform a high school, why should we believe that they will transform these lower tier high schools? Because I don't believe, because I think the difference, yeah, first of all, I, don't, I didn't pretend that it was very original. Um, and in fact, I happen to believe the best thing you can do is take established research and that's been borne out in good practice. I mean, these things are pretty common sense. A, a good, a safe place to be learning, for instance, uh, positive uh, uh, per, uh, personalization, good mentoring for teachers, and so on. But, but the key, once again, is, okay, we know what works in a school, but how do we replicate it? How do we get the policymakers to support the policies that will really make it happen? How do we have it survive the, the very limited lifespan of most superintendents? I thought members of Congress had brief lifespans until I started doing research on how long a, a, a school superintendent lasts, uh, uh, two to three years on average. And so the key then is, I think, is saying this is what we want not only at the school level, but this is what we want at the policymaker level, the school board, the state legislature. And what is it that needs to be done to make sure it happens? And how do we measure success? I guess what uh, my mantra is this. There's a crisis in our country. We basically know what to do about it, particularly in terms of high schools, secondary schools. We have to build the public will. This is about building the public will to sustain the changes that need to be made. Well, uh, building the public will, uh, your book is built around the notion that the federal government has to play a much larger role. As you point out, uh, the feds maybe pay uh, eight cents out of every education dollar, but you are arguing for an, a federal interventionist kind of role to get these good high schools. Is that correct? I'm arguing that the federal government must, yes, uh, that the federal government must play a much larger role. But I want to give you a little of my bias. I may have been 18 years in the federal system, I was, but where the work gets done is at the state level uh, and the local level. I have no illusions uh, that the federal government can run schools. What I do believe the federal government can do is do what's being done successfully in a number of major developed nations that are coming on much faster than we are in education, 
The federal government can set some overarching standards, then provide assistance uh, that is in dollars, basically, to local and state governments to actually implement them. And also the federal government can assist those state and local districts to intervene much quicker. Uh, so I would actually propose a model that's much more flexible than what we have now, a set of common standards. Does anybody really? I'm just curious, when any, anybody take any, I take three, um, uh, more than you wanted to know about me, but I take three medications before I go to bed at night. Now I don't, does anybody, when you take your medication, open that pill box and say, now, you know, you know, dear, I did this, was this, pill made by, was this pill made in Mississippi or Massachusetts? Because I know it has different standards connected to it. Or when you buy a car, do you say, well, this car, was this an Alabama car or was this a Montana car? Or the one that always gets me is the military. We don't expect a soldier trained at Fort Bragg to be trained differently than a, a soldier at Killeen, Texas, uh, and so on. No, they're common standards for all. And we're finally at the point, I believe, where algebra in Idaho is, in math in Idaho, is basically the same math in Brooklyn. And incidentally, it doesn't really matter because we're all competing against the, the kids in, in Singapore, uh, in Beijing, and Berlin anyway. And so that's why I'm saying, I'm calling for another model, which is a lot, a lot more effort actually at the state and local level, but with the common standards that everyone's agreed to, internationally benchmarked, and with the federal government providing more resources. Well, I read the section about the common standards and national standards. The National Governors Association has come out in favor of national standards. But I read the paragraph in your book twice, and I'm not clear where you stand. Are you in favor of national standards? Yes. Uh, and in fact, I, my organization was one of 13 organizations that signed the same statement that the governors did. Good. Okay. And my organization is also one of the five that joined with the governors and the chief state school officers, that is the National Association of State Superintendents of Education, uh, and three other organizations two and a half years ago to advance this cause of common standards that are internationally benchmarked. Well, that's terrific. Now, you must then be in favor of national tests. Uh, there, I happen to be. Uh, others aren't. Now, that, that, there tends to break down on whether or not you have a national assessment. I'm a little confused about how you, and I know that there are others that are much more skilled in education than I, but how, if you have national standards, I'm, there are those who argue, but you still would have the ability for states to have their own assessments. Get me the standards first. I'll argue about the assessments later. All right, so, uh, so right now you would defer the topic of a test. I have so far. <laughs> All right. But you understand there's no sense in having national standards unless you have some form of assessment of those standards. I'm really glad you and I agree on this. <laughs> no, I agree with you, but, but there, are those, there are some who balk and say, I'm for common standards, but I'm not ready to go for the common assessment yet. I don't quite get it, but... It's the important thing in politics in getting something done is let's get everybody under the tent on where we can agree. The important thing is to get the standards. I think that the assessment will then sort itself out. Look, we've got a system right now. NCLB, No Child Left Behind, says that every child shall be tested in reading and math grades three to eight with one test in uh, high school. And, but every state, and, and they must be proficient. Sounds re that almost sounds like a common standard, right? Except that proficient is defined by each state. And each state decides, it's, it sets its up, makes its own test. And finally, 
Each state then decides what's passing on the test that it made to, to measure what it decided was proficient. Little seems to me at that point then we don't have much common proficiency. And so that's why I think we need a common standard and then, and then I think the assessments will work itself out. All right, let me move to a, a kind of a slightly different question, Bob. The subtitle of your book is How High School Reform Can Save Our Youth and Nation. To be more ex uh, specific, the explicit assumption driving your book is that better high schools can boost the economy, reduce income inequities, increase social stability, and bolster national security. Now let me be a skeptic just for a no, moment. No, not here. <laughs> we are in the midst of the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. Unemployment is close to 10%, as we all know. This recession was triggered by highly educated financiers <laughs> and a laissez attitude toward any regulation of mortgage and credit markets. We are in the midst of a health care crisis where over 40% of Americans lack health insurance. We are in the midst of having been a nation of segregated big cities and suburbs that have created segregated schools. We are in the midst of two developing nations with nuclear weapons that are willing to share those weapons to the highest bidder. To me, this is my opinion, these domestic and foreign crises have seemingly little connection to the reform of American high schools. Now here's my skeptical question. Oh, I was wondering when we'd get to that. I... Uh, <laughs> don't be difficult with me, okay? <laughs> uh, are you doing the familiar overpromising of public high schools as solutions to economic, political, and social problems that are really anchored in institutions and policies well outside the reach of any school reform? The answer is no. Uh, and I actually, every one of those problems you raised, with the possible exception of the nu nuclear face, or with the exception of the two-front war, uh, and even that, every one of them has a link to exactly what I'm talking about. We're all, con we're all very much aware of non-performing assets right now, toxic assets, some people call them. What, about if, I, what if I told you there's another set of non-performing assets out there? Uh, five years of accumulation of these assets will cost this country about a trillion and a half dollars. That's more than AIG, subprime, and the auto bailout combined. What are they? That's five years of dropouts and lost income from those dropouts. That's not, that's with, so, and in, in, in that's why I make, try to make this case seven ways to Sunday in here about the economic impact of high schools and how important it is. It's important for another reason as well. You mentioned health care. Part of health care is about a highly skilled workforce that's going to be able to work with electronic medical records. It's going to also, because health care is a very technical skill, uh, technical uh, uh, job in, in many ways. And yet, if that all requires post-secondary education. And yet we, today in, in our society, 60 90% of the fastest growing high wage jobs and 60% of current jobs require some education after high school. And yet, we instead we're going the other way. We have 1.2 million dropouts a year. T just take these numbers. 10 kids sitting in the class, 10 kids start ninth grade, three of them aren't going to graduate national, on a national average, and three more will finish high school but without the skills they need for college or the modern workplace. So we finish up our high school year, with their four years, with only four kids able to perform in a modern society. 
So I, I submit to you that every one of those problems that you just mentioned is directly related to this. The other thing is we're in an economic crisis that's unprecedented. And when we come out of this crisis, we are going to have even higher skill levels required because all the jobs that have been like, most of the jobs that have been reduced or people have been eliminated from now, those skill, le those skill levels are such that they have been assumed or subsumed into other jobs. They're not, those jobs aren't coming back. And so the next, when the economy re rebounds, hopefully, um, then we're going to need, all, everybody who left the workplace is going to need to have even higher skill level. And finally, I'd, suggest, I'd submit, uh, there's a wonderful slide I saw the other day. This is the first recession out of the last three or four that has not been dominated by white-collar layoffs. Sure, we get the, all the attention is given to how many are getting laid off at, at City or some of the large financial institutions. The, the, the fact is that it's 12% of dropouts who are laid off and 4% of college graduates. So uh, there's no overpromising in any of this. You, you see the transformation of high schools as being uh, absolutely crucial to the solving of these other kinds of problems. I don't, I don't see how you do solve the other problems without middle and high schools being a vital part of it. High school is a jumping off spot for the workplace, for society, uh, for college. If you do not have all of our kids gra graduating to their maximum ability, um, uh, then I don't see how we get there. And indeed, there's been a lot of work on this campus, uh, Eric Hanyashek and, and, uh, and some of the economists pointing out that simply if we could get our kids up to parity with their counterparts on, that they compete with on international exams, then that would be, be like a 4.5% boost to our GDP alone. And so there is a, the point I try to make, there's, there are two reasons to improve schools. One is the, the the civil rights, equity, and moral imperative. Every child should have a good education. But now there's another imperative that's inextricably joined, and that's the economic one. If we don't make sure these kids have a good education, then we all suffer, and our economy suffers. Well, uh, as you said earlier, the economic uh, imperative has been around for over a century in terms of high schools. High, comprehensive high schools began with one of the notion of moving them into commercial and college kinds of preparation, okay? So the economic imperative has been there, particularly since the nation of risk, as you point out in your book. So it strikes me that this economic imperative has been around so long and has been so forceful, and yet the kinds of inequities that we're talking about that happen outside of school have not been addressed by school reformers, such as yourself, in terms of the segregation that exists within our society. And that, those kinds of inequities are not going to be solved, in my opinion, by simply having more, uh, more kids skilled at graduation. So I'm wondering, how would you respond to that? I'd respond. Or we just disagree? I don't think we do disagree, because I, I, I mean, I, I, I think, let me ask you, I learned this in counseling, as a matter of fact, uh, will mirror. Let me, let me repeat back to you. What I think I heard you say was that 
you have to look at the other, the whole environment that a child comes from as Indeed. well as the educational process. Indeed. That got you it? did a better job than I okay. did. Well, and, and we don't disagree, and I'll take a backseat to no one. When I was in office, I had a great deal to do with making sure that we greatly expanded children's health care, for instance, in my state. And you mentioned uh, expanding uh, uh, child development programs and whatnot. But I also want to tell you a story I heard the new Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, tell uh, the day after he was sworn or took office, and that was of working uh, as a community organizer in Chicago uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King visited. This was back, obviously, in the 60s. And as a result of Dr. King's visit, a whole lot of attention was put on make, improving the conditions in, that, in those neighborhoods, health clinics, a lot of uh, war on poverty initiatives moving in and whatnot. But he said, you know, 30-some years later, it's still the same. And the reason is nobody improved the education. So we can improve the environment. But if we don't improve the education, something, the place where they go, we're not going to accomplish anything. By the same token, we have to recognize that kids coming into school whose teeth hurt because they can't get to a dentist, who are hungry, they've got a much harder slog too. So I, don't, I really don't believe it's an either or. I believe it's a, a, a strategy about how it is that we improve education at the same time recognizing that kids, everybody comes with a particular need. Incidentally, every child comes with a unique need. I also would submit to you that many of our schools come to us with a unique need. And that's where you have to be careful with the federal application is that you want to make sure that the feds give enough leeway so that the school in rural West Virginia and the school in downtown Oakland uh, have what they need to address their own particular problems. And, but at the same time, make sure that they are addressing those problems. Let me ask this final question, Bob. Uh, how do you see the stimulus bill with the enormous $100 billion that will be directed toward education moving in the kind of direction that you would like to see? I think the stimulus bill was necessary. The stimulus bill is, a, first of all, talk about the direct tie to is education and the economy linked? This is the first stimulus package that has ever provided far more money for education than it did for building infrastructure like roads and bridges and the things that just warm the cockles of every uh, elected official's heart. You don't know how good it feels to say, I got you three miles of Interstate 77. <laughs> now, the, uh, uh, but the stimulus, so the stimulus bill recognized it, and it recognized something else, that this is an information age economy. It's not the industrial age that we knew 30 or 40 years or longer than that. It's an information age eco economy and therefore, in an information age economy, currency, the currency is education. I happen to believe that the stimulus bill was necessary to help us tread water. Actually, let me use another analogy. I love my healthcare analogies. Patient gets wheeled into the emergency room on a gurney. Massive coronary. What's the first thing that happens? Put the, put the paddles on them and spring them back to life. Keep them, sustain them. And that's what this hundred, about eight, about 90 billion of the 100 billion dollars of the stimulus package does. It per, helps school districts sustain themselves. It doesn't provide, though, that they start in, introducing the changes that are vital to, that in order to change how we do business. There is about eight to 10 billion called the race to the top funds, and then there's three billion in Title I st, uh, state uh, school improvement grants that actually will drive reform. And the secretary has made clear that if you want to get the second round of funding, you're going to have to show that you did innovative things. So I guess the stimulus package, I would say, I think it was valuable to make sure that we could keep teachers in classrooms, that school buses kept running. Uh, but at the same time, we can't be fooled into thinking that, first of all, there'll be another stimulus package of this magnitude. There won't. 
uh, the, can't, the Congress won't approve that kind of magnitude of spending, second go around. And the second thing is there probably shouldn't be because if all it does is keep us, let us keep doing business the way we have been. Look, the American public's prepared for change. That I don't know about you, my wife and I don't open our 401ks anymore. Uh, I mean, what's the point? Uh, we're working, the good news is, I, I talked to my financial counsel, I can, she says I can retire when I'm 87. Um, the American public understands. We've watched our auto industry get turned upside down. Our financial world is, is uh, topsy-turvy. Nobody expects business and life to be the same in education can't, education is no different. You know, there's, a, there's one benefit to education. Does anybody here really believe, down deep, that in Washington they know what they're doing on the TARP? <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> but, but you know something? Because of the work that's been done at this institution and a number of others and the work that's done in classrooms every day, we know what to do about education. But now we have to have the will, and that's, that's what I think the difference is. So I don't, I'm, I'm actually much more optimistic that we can make the changes here than in education that are necessary, using this crisis is the, the, uh, uh, the fulcrum in many ways uh, than I am about some of the others. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to turn it over to questions uh, from the audience. I think there are microphones here and, uh, and questions you would like to address to Bob. But while you're just queuing up, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me also follow up, if I could, on that. Larry's question on the stimulus factor. I'll make an observation to you. The reason that the federal government is so important in the next three or four years is it is the only player in town that has any money. And while I don't believe that spending always equates into educational improvement, and in fact I'm not interested in spending one additional dollar simply to make a dysfunctional system more expensive. Think about that later. Um, I, am, I do believe that there will need to be strategic investments. Our state well, our states, and particularly this one, uh, are flat on their back. I mean, I know what it's like, and you do too, but I know what it's like to be a public official and to look up at the, your ceiling every day and it's like an avalanche is coming and you have no control over it because the economy is just so bad. It's only one, one group that can, there's only one entity that can make, provide the resources necessary, and that's going to be the federal government. And so how that's structured and how relates to the state and local officials is critical. But for the next three or four years, if we're going to make gains in education, the federal government is going to have to be a critical partner. There's a question over here. Um, going, <coughs> going back to what you were saying earlier about the um, sort of the fight against there being any sort of a national assessment, um, kind of who are the parties and what are the reasons for, for any sort of, for blocking that? So like what are, what are the issues that people have with the idea of having a national assessment specifically? Well, there are a lot of folks who've already developed assessments. Uh, I mean, obviously, if there are 50 states that have developed their own assessments, both for their own needs and also for NCLB purposes, plus those that, that do assessments generally, you know, a lot of people that think, well, I know how to do assessments. And so I think that you've just got some natural competition there. My sense is that there could be a deal struck here if you handled it like Medicare, bear with me. Uh, in, when the Congress passed Medicare in 1965 or three, what they did was while the federal government actually pays for Medicare, health care for senior citizens, 
the insurance companies administer it in different regions of the country. And so that if I've got a question about my Medicare claim, I'm not calling the federal government, I'm calling the, the contracted administrator. And that you might be able to work so that those that have been involved in the business of assessments continue to do assessments, it's just they're administering one assessment, the common assessment, as opposed to the one that they might have developed. Over here. I'm curious what you think about the role of vocational high schools. I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm just reacting a little bit to when you said vocational, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very, I think that the, the need for diff multiple pathways, uh, differentiated approaches, uh, career and technical education. And uh, when I grew up, vocational high school meant that's where the kids went that you didn't think could make college prep. And so what I think is, I happen to think that career and technical education is a vital integral part of uh, education. And indeed, what we have seen is that we have seen that a number of students that take uh, what's in various states, CTE, career and technical education, uh, that will actually get them more engaged to, and they go on to college. And so I'm, I'm supportive of it under the heading of what I call multiple pathways. They're different, we've got to engage kids in where they live and what they find interesting. And so if what they find interesting is whether you call it a career academy, there are a number of uh, high schools at the ninth grade is sort of general, but then you choose whether or not you go into a healthcare curriculum or a law and uh, government curriculum or so on, or whether you go into a career-oriented one, uh, that's fine. There is, I believe, and this is disputed, so i just put that out there, but I believe that I, I tend to come down on the converging, the, the theory, that, the research that suggests that what it, you need to succeed in the workplace, that is you're not going to college, but you go right out of high school into the workplace, that what you need to succeed in the modern workplace is increasingly converging with what you need to succeed in the first year of college. And therefore, what's important is that we offer students differentiated approaches, but we make sure that they are still getting, however we're engaging them, they're still getting the same skills. Over here? Yeah, I have a question about um, the way you compared Singapore and Beijing schools to American schools. So um, I know you said you wanted strategic investments in American schools. And I'm wondering um, if the same kind of strategic investments have been made in Beijing and Singapore schools. And that's why they're, I don't know, maybe their algebra is performing better. or. Um, how much can we attribute the failure of uh, American high schools to the kids themselves and not actual just pouring resources in? Because I don't, I don't know much about the Beijing high school system, but I'm not sure they actually spend more resources on Beijing students than they do in American students. But American students do perform not as well as Beijing students. So could you elaborate on I, that? I'll be... I don't, in, in terms of Beijing, I can't speak to that. Uh, I can speak to the OECD nations, the Organization for Economic and Cooperative Development. It's the 30 most developed nations in the world. And, and China is coming on fast, but they have been testing, those OECD nations have been testing for at least 10 years, 15 year olds across the country, I'm sorry, across the world. And so we're able to, uh, now have a, some comparisons developed. And the United States in Singapore is one of the OECD nations. China, that is the Republic of China, just uh, 
I believe half their provinces will participate or have taken the PISA exam. That's the program for international student assessment, the, the test that the 15-year-olds take. I believe half the provinces are now administering it, but, but they're not formally part of the OECD. Anyway, the U.S. finished 21st in science in this last go-around in 2006, finished 25th in math, finished 15th in literacy, and 24th in problem solving. And so what, what I believe we ought to be doing, and my organization just issued a report with a number of recommendations, is we as a nation need to be participating much more fully in these international comparisons. We've tended not to be involved. And, and, we, and, and even worse than ignoring what the tests say, if you don't believe in the tests and there's legitimate, there are people that argue that these tests aren't relevant to the U.S., if, if you don't believe in the tests, then participate in some of the other surveys. For, you have somebody on this campus, Linda Darling-Hammond, who's been very much involved. Uh, Dr. Hammond's been very much, Darling-Hammond's been very much involved in looking at Singapore and looking at teaching practices in other nations. What is it that, how is it that other nations are applying technology successfully in the classroom that we might learn from? What about teacher retention, teacher preparation? Uh, so there are a number of areas outside of just testing where there are true lessons from the world that we could be learning. Uh, and and then, but by the same token, there's some others that we that aren't very relevant. But the, but but what we need to be doing is willing to engage, and we haven't. I didn't answer your question fully. I understand that. But but I would urge you to look at the context of at least the OECD. Uh, they, if you go to their website, there are a number of. Uh, uh, they've got a, a tome of statistics and surveys, uh, results of surveys. And then also, if you wanted to take a quick and dirty look, go to our website, Alliance for Excellent Education. Just Google that. Um, uh, go to our website, and you can see a report that was issued just two weeks ago on why the United, where the United States is falling down and participating in these surveys and what we could learn from them. Over here. Um, thank you. you. I liked how you mentioned uh, middle schools. I am a middle school teacher here. What, and then also, you know, uh, the programs have to change. But my problem is most of the people that I wind up dealing with that uh, cause 80% of the administration's time in trying to solve their problems are usually third or fourth generation welfare. I just had one student in the physical education, which is now a state exit exam, just walk off the field and says, I don't give a damn. I don't care. I'm not going to finish it. How are we going to engage these students that from kindergarten have already been earmarked, earmarked, identified, and, you know, they're getting at least, what, minimum 100 referrals a year. Uh, we spend time on them and everything else. What are we going to do to, you know, give the teachers some resources and everything else to to try and teach the average kids so that we can get those group up and not kill ourselves and waste our time on those, what, 15%? Sometimes that's why I'm glad I'm in policy. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but also let me say is you, you said two key words. One is you said earmarked from kindergarten. I can't, if a kid is already branded in kindergarten, uh, branded in the sense that this kid's a troublemaker, then I don't think they are going to succeed. But I think, I think what I hope you meant was when you said earmark is if we can identify that child as having these problems, then what is the intervention that needs to be done right then? Once again, common sense and research so often seem to come together. 
two major sets of research recently about early warning indicators, that, you, that truancy, uh, uh, failure of one grade, uh, ten, what is it, 10 absences within a semester, and there's one other uh, 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 early warning indicator that in the sixth grade can predict something like 50% of dropouts. By ninth grade, you can predict uh, 80 to 90%. And so that's where this, the need for personalization and intervention comes in immediately, as opposed to this kid gets passed along, more and more of a problem, nobody responds, and then after a while, uh, bears the stigma. And incidentally, remember that reading, st that reading statistic I gave you, 70% of eighth graders reading below a proficient level, 30% two or three grades below grade level? Think if you're an eighth grader. You've, you're not comfortable in your own skin anyway, You've been, and you act out a fair amount. And now you enter high school and you go to the English Lit course or the Chem course, and you can't read or you can't comprehend. You can read three paragraphs aloud off the page, but you can't make a fact out of it. You can't make a draw a conclusion from it. Are you going to hold up your hand and say, teacher, I've got real problems with reading? Of course not. You're going to act out, and you're going to get frustrated. You're going to do one of two things. You either get very sad or you get very mad, but you're going to get frustrated, and you're going to drop out. We know that dropouts, it's not something that is a sudden epiphany, uh, like Paul on the road to Damascus says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drop out today. Uh, this is something that builds up over many years. And so what I heard you say was earmark, but the other thing I heard you say was resources to do the intervention. Because if you do the identification early, then maybe you can, then hopefully you can steer a lot of these kids off. Look, I can't, I can't solve the environment problem. And that's something you and I were talking about, Larry. But this, but, and, and, it's, and it's not the teacher's job to have to do it. But if we're going to be successful, we've got to recognize these kids all come to us differently. So what are the strategies we need to, to adapt and create in order to deal with it? Over here. Hi. Um, I, I come from the UK, where there are similar concerns in terms of education policy and, the, where, and the, where the major framework is the, a policy called um, Every Child Matters, which seems to share many of the same motivations for the policy uh, in this country. But concurrently to that policy, to the establishment of that policy framework, uh, the UK government has also decided to invest massively in uh, building new schools. So there's a, one program for secondary schools called Building Schools for the Future, and another program for primary schools, which seems to be, the intent seems to be to, to use the physical, the transformation of the physical infrastructure as a catalyst or an opportunity to, to, to transform also the education system. To what extent that sort of a strategic approach would make, make sense for you or not? It might make sense, but unfortunately in this country we do not have a tradition of having a concerted policy around that. Uh, school building, is, school construction is something that is left uh, by tradition to the state and local governments. Uh, and interestingly enough, even in this last stimulus package where people are trying to put dollars in that can be quickly put to so-called shovel-ready projects, uh, uh, roads and things like that, uh, the Congress took out most of the money that would assist states build schools. So we just don't have a tradition and we ought to. Uh, some states have, a better, have better practices than others. Uh, it's an expensive process, but it needs to be done. Particularly, I think, in, it's not as, yes, new schools are always nice, but also renovated schools that reflect the modern technology that has to be, that you need in the classrooms. Over here. 
I have two questions. Uh, you can take your pick. Um, Nobody ever gave me that when I was in <laughs> politics, I'll tell you. I like this. My, my first question has to do with uh, a paradigm shift uh, in the schools where we would focus more on proficiency than we do on seat time. And uh, if there's a role for that kind of a, of a shift in, in our paradigm. Second question would be, uh, is there a role for the internet in uh, secondary education with the uh, rising level of internet uh, technology and uh, the uh, familiarity of our students with that medium, are we, are we using it? A million high school students right now are taking at least one course online. Clayton Christensen writes in his book, Disrupting Class, that uh, by 2019, even without any policy application, that probably half uh, the high school courses will be de delivered online. So it's not a case of will there be internet, it's a question of whether or not we're going to figure out how to, to make it work. Uh, in terms of uh, your first question, seat time, uh, there is no magic to me uh, in seat time uh, or in any other kind of, I mean, children, kids, students, we all have different time needs. And we, what we need to do is to recognize that some students are going to need far more than seven and a half hours, 180 days a year. They're going to need uh, uh, work over the summer. They're going to need tutoring after hours. Some students may not. Does anyone really think it makes sense that 180 days is the uh, bedroom? I mean, it's, besides the fact that in the industrialized world, it's the lowest amount of time of any, of any uh, students going to class. But th that makes much sense that this comes out of both an agrarian era, and somebody said that it also relates to uh, uh, before there was air conditioning. Uh, you didn't, who wanted to be around uh, more than 180 days when it turned hot? I just have to share this quick anecdote with you. When I was governor, I tried to change the 180 days. <laughs> be careful. Um, uh, so finally, I was willing to compromise and just making it more flexible so you could start later, start earlier and later if you had 25 snow days in Hampshire County, for instance. Who was it that came in and fought, to, the first group that came in fought tooth and nail, who was the most vociferous, first one in my office? Whom do you think it was? Absolutely not. I know you're going to say teachers. You Nope. Summer camp people. Uh, pretty close. Uh, uh, the Amusement Park Association. <laughs> Apparently, and I, I even offered this deal. I said, I'll promise you this. Because we'll break it up, and these kids can, they'll go, they'll go trimesters or quarters or whatever, you can run the Ferris wheels longer in the fall. I couldn't, couldn't get them around. We have so time for one more question. Okay. Thank you. Um, I know I look like a high school student, but I'm actually a high school teacher. And I've taught in two states now. And I just, we don't get these opportunities often. So I wanted to voice some concerns that teachers have. My sister is also a teacher in Virginia, which is where I just moved from. And um, as far as our concerns go, it's not a job that we do for the money, obviously. But teacher time is something that I feel is really becoming a threat to your retention of good teachers. Um, the data that you were talking about with NCLB, as far as that goes in Virginia, I spent my time after school when I could have been calling parents or tutoring or something or grading papers. I was making um, a data sheet of which students were not performing, um, what I did to prevent that, and what the school did to prevent that, dates that I called their parents, many of which are the parents I can't get in touch with in the first place, and maybe if that had changed, um, something could have been done. But there was no column on that sheet for students or for their parents. It was complete accountability for the teacher, which was really um, a burden on us, and you know, many of the veteran teachers were not happy with that either. And as far as um, teacher time also, when I moved here, um, 
I was a fully credentialed teacher in another state, and this is a policy thing that also bothers me, that um, being a fully credentialed teacher who had just completed a rigorous program and I had reciprocity in four mid-Atlantic states, I came here and I'm having to redo a lot of the certification. Um, that's something that also stands to discourage a lot of good teachers rather than keep them. Um, and also, is there a question coming? Um, there is a question. I'm, and also with the 10 to 15 students, when are the teachers doing that in the Bronx? When are they meeting with those students? Because I feel that I have 170 students right now, up from 110 last year, and I just don't have free time. Oh, I hardly no, have time to do my job. So are policymakers talking about this and their but concern I, for well, education? Well, it would be interesting, and maybe we could talk offline or afterwards about how your school is structured so mm -hmm. that you have time to meet with those students. You, you raise legitimate concerns. I, I might say that NCLB often gets rat, a rap for what are state practices. And so not all the practices that you said are necessarily NCLB, uh, but, but what needs to be done is to have a true strategy, a cohesive strategy. What is it we want in assessments, and particularly with assessments and the kind of record keeping you're talking about is that it not be punitive, but that it be informative and that it also be positive. And if I could, Dean, uh, just conclude with something is I'd, I'd like to thank you and, and the uh, uh, Stanford uh, school here because of what you do. This book was written to try and get non-educators, but educators too, to be involved in helping make policy, to, uh, to push for the kind of education reforms. The only way we know what those reforms are are those who actually, as you have just eloquently talked about, but those who do the research, those who do the practice. I mean, you're, those of you who are visiting this institution, and they didn't ask me to say this, those of you who are visiting this institution, I don't know whether you know it, but besides being in one of the most nationally renowned institutions, you're also in an institution that runs and has created a high school uh, that takes the most at-risk students and gets the results we're talking that we want for all our high schools, that has created a school redesign network, and finally, in terms of policy, that actually had the co-chair of President Obama's uh, transition team Came from comes from this school, and so uh, and we we use a lot of the research that comes from Stanford, uh, as well as the practical policy applications in what we advocate on Capitol Hill. So I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, but also to take and borrow from Stanford. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.